No, not so. So this morning we we crossed the another of one of those continental divides. The four measurables are common. Uh, we find them in the yoga tradition of Hinduism, and of course throughout the Theravada tradition, the Pali Canon. They're common to the Mahayana, and if not, you're not, not in that sequence and so forth, certainly we find these virtues taught in other religions around the world. And so they're sublime, they're universal. And they can be cultivated as an adjunct to achieving one's own liberation, one's own individual liberation. And that's how they are practiced in the Theravada tradition. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. It's all good, it's all benevolent, yeah, it's all good. But today we cross the continental divide, of course, over into the, into the Bodhisattva ideal, the, uh, the Mahayana. And with this platform, as, as I've emphasized so much before, this, this equanimity, this even-heartedness is the indispensable foundation. Uh, literally, big emphasis on indispensable foundation for cultivating bodhicitta, for cultivating any of the four, the four greats. And I'll begin once again with great compassion, and I think it's, again, I've never heard this to be the case, that you know that's the sequence of the four greats, that it starts with great compassion. I think probably normally in the literature it starts with great loving-kindness. But I'm just choosing to. I don't think there'll be any harm uh, in starting with the great compassion. Because it just is it's when it, what really comes to mind very strongly, insofar as one can cultivate this even-hearted, even-hearted concern, or care, there's a word, this even-hearted sense of caring, for everyone around, and then one begins to take in just how much need there is, how much suffering to be, how much suffering there is, and how much needless suffering there is, and then how much in the magnitude of mental afflictions and vices and so forth in the world, uh, it can really be quite overwhelming. Even, even it said the tenth stage Aryabodhisattva burst into tears, you know, uh, and they call it unbearable. Unbearable compassion, misube, misube nije, unbearable compassion, is how they refer to it. Uh, and here we are once again in the 21st century, and we are faced to an unprecedented degree. I know this is a, it's a litany I keep on reciting, but uh, to an unprecedented degree in the history of humanity, we are exposed to uh, the amount of need there is in the world, how much poverty there is. Over three billion people on the planet living on less than two and a half dollars a day over 1.5 billion living, living on less than $1.25 a day. Uh, in the meantime, while well, 65 people own as much as the poor, 3.5 billion. So one sees this and it kind of just shatters the heart. You know, like how, how is it possible that such, such profound and obscene inequity of wealth could possibly occur? But seeing the need, without getting all disgruntled and upset about this, just seeing the need, it can easily give rise to, very reasonably give rise to, a wish, uh, gosh, I wish I were filthy rich, just incredibly rich, so I could just distribute it, you know. I wish I were immensely powerful, so I could, I could use my power to, to bring greater justice and equity and, and help to the world. I wish I had tremendous status, prestige, reputation. I wish to be incredibly famous so I could use that and really do some good in the world. A number of Hollywood celebrities do that. It's great. I won't give any particular names, but you know who they are, the number of them. They, you know, they're incredibly attractive and then they're wealthy, but most importantly, have this fame. 
you know, by being actors. It's like being famous for being a plumber, you know, because there's, to be an actor doesn't prepare you for anything, you know, global activity. You know, why your political opinions matter than being a plumber or a baker. But they are famous and therefore people want to listen to them. You know, okay, I'm not complaining. Then wouldn't it be great to be, you know, really, really famous so people would want to listen to what you have to say and they would, they would actually listen. Oh, he's so famous, it must be really wise. You know? And so those three, I call them the three jewels of the mundane world, wealth, power, and prestige. And it's very easy to see quite reasonably how my, one might wish, oh, I wish, oh, if only I could have tremendous wealth and influence and prestige, status, reputation. I could be doing so much. Then I could really be effective. Whereas for me, you know, you know, not much of any of the three, and not any real prospects for getting much of the three. So it's you know, in this in this world, it's very easy to feel incredibly disempowered, disempowered by that. So insofar as one has a sense, tragically, powerfully reinforced by materialism that one has no inner resources. And if you look within, you're just going to be deluded anyway, so why bother? There really isn't anything within, because your mind is just what the brain does. Then naturally, if you believe that, and billions of people do, then when you're looking for greater happiness, when you're looking for greater fulfillment, you will look outwards, and you will look outwards to greater wealth, power, and prestige. Where else would you look? Uh, But then it's, as we know, and the scientific studies have been done, they're completely conclusive, that... um, you're never satisfied. Never satisfied. It used to be 85 people who own as much as the poor 3.5 billion. And when I learned about that, I said, one thing be sure, they want more. Those 85 want more. You know? And they got it. Now 65 people own as much as the poor 3.5 billion. Want me to make another prediction? They want more. I wonder how long it would be before the top 45 people own as much as the poor 3.5 billion. You know. So there it is. So these are, these are just very sad facts of the world. But then, how can we possibly move into this realm of great compassion, where one is t- not only arousing this wonderful motivation, this aspiration, may we all be free of suffering and its causes, but actually taking on responsibility. right? And as was very clear the first time we ran through this, the only possible way, the only possible perspective from which it is realistic to make not only that aspiration, but that resolve, is from the perspective of Buddha nature. And then it's not only perfectly reasonable, it's kind of like logically unavoidable. And so I'd like to, in the mornings now, for a little while, go back and, and just give an oral transmission on one of my favorite chapters ever. It's chapter four. So, and here Kamachamaramache gives a number of parables, uh, which are also Dzogchen parables, highlighting our relationship to our own Buddha nature and our status as sentient beings. Chapter four, this is kind of story time, so relax, enjoy, enjoy one story. You only get one story a day. So sorry. An introduction to parables and their meanings, homage, homage to Avalokiteshvara. These are the profound practical instructions of Avalokiteshvara. This is an introduction to parables in conjunction with their meanings for the purpose of identifying the ultimate reality of your own mind as the Dharmakaya. 
In other words, to, for the purpose of identifying who you really are, knowing your own nature. While giving the complete combined empowerments and teachings on the secret, peaceful, and wrathful deities, Orgyen Rinpoche, Padmasambhava, taught the following. So here's, here's our parable for today. I've told it actually many times, but here it is straight from, this, from the source. It is said that long ago in Godang, Gopodang Parde, in the land of India, in the center of the region of Oregon, there was a structure built of precious substances with five doors and inexhaustible wealth, a palace wherein dwelled King Akashagarbha. <clears throat> with 84,000 districts, he ruled over many subjects. His queen was named Vimala Prabhi Nimanonja, Sorry, and his son, Prince Kirana, had not come into his strength and was foolish. His queen was fine. It was his son had the problem. His son had not, has not matured not, and was foolish. His wise minister was named Surya Nashin. In short, he possessed a splendid entourage, realm, subjects, and wealth. Once near the king's palace, there was a great festival held in a marketplace, and Prince Kirana together with his entourage, went to see the show. The prince went to watch the various spectacles displayed by an illusionist, and he was carried away by them. After getting separated from his companions, he became confused about the way back to the palace and lost his way. The prince wandered by foot in lands of people of more than one race and became a vagrant. He forgot his homeland and wandered from the great gates of one city to another, eating beggar's food and wearing beggar's rags. Living in the company of foolish derelicts, he found nowhere to sleep but on doorsteps and experienced great misery. Many months and years went by, and the kingdom, having lost its princely heir, was on the verge of collapse, and there was fear that the royal line of of King Akashagarabha had come to an end. At that time, the young beggar prince, in roving about among the city-states, happened to arrive at the door of the wise minister, Surya Nashim. The minister, recognizing him as the prince, exclaimed, Oh, our prince, who was previously lost, has returned. You need not beg. Come to the palace. And he began to lead him there. The beggar prince replied, I am no prince. When I search my memory, I recall being only a vagrant. You may bring me to the palace, but I am not fit to be, to, to be king, so I shall not go. The minister replied, As a young foolish prince not come into your strength, you went to watch an illusionist show in the marketplace. Getting caught up in the spectacle, you left the domain of the palace and went wandering. Now, even though you live as a vagrant, you are indeed the prince, so you will be given the seat of royalty. If you persist in your doubts, about being the prince, I ask you, what was your original homeland? What was the palace? What was the city? What was your home? What was your class? Who was your father? Who was your mother? Who were your companions? What was your occupation? The beggar found that he had nothing to say, and he was stunned. Well then, he requested, tell me in detail about all these things, and grant them to, to me. The minister gave names to the realities and pointed out his homeland. And he likewise told the prince everything about his district, palace, city, home, sleeping quarters, family and parents. The wise Brahmin then bathed the prince, took him outside, placed him on the throne and established him in the palace. There he was crowned, with a diadem placed upon his head and clothed in royal garb. 
all at once. He was offered the wealth of his domain. A coronation ceremony was held, and he was given the kingdom and the royal palace. He became like his father in an instant. Even though he did not discard his identity as a beggar, he no longer lived in the manner of a beggar. The misery of being a vagrant disappeared by itself, and the kingdom of all his subjects, without exception, came under his rule, and they lived in great joy and happiness. I think that was so. That's the parable, and Padmasambhava himself will give a commentary. He'll unpack it for you. In case, it, in case it's not perfectly obvious, he'll explain the meaning. Here's a brief explanation of the meaning of that parable from Kamachamirapache. Long ago, in, in Gopotampade, in the land of India, with the realization there is spiritual awakening, so what this means is, with the realization there is spiritual awakening, but without realization there is the cycle. With realization, there is spiritual awakening, but without realization, there is samsara. What was then, what was before then, no one knows. Before the distinction between samsara and nirvana. Then the phrase, in the center of the region of Oregon, signifies an absence of size and dimensions. There was a structure built of precious substances, refers to the empty essence of everything. With five doors refers to unimpeded openness. Inexhaustible wealth refers to without decline due to faults and without increase due to excellent qualities. A palace refers to the all-pervasive essence of the ground. King Akashagarbha corresponds to not falling to the extremes of samsara or nirvana. With 84,000 districts refers to mastery over all types of realization and mastery over the 84,000 gateways to the Dhamma. He ruled over many subjects, refers to being invulnerable to all mental afflictions. His queen was named Vimana Prabhi Nimanonjya. This refers to dwelling together with the appearances of the displays of your own luminosity. And his son's Prince Kirana refers to neither realizing nor being confused by the momentarily arising expressions of your own creative power of Prasina awareness had not come into a strength, means realization had not manifested. And was foolish, means he was spontaneous, and this, that this awareness is spontaneous and ineffable. His wise minister, this is the spiritual mentor in whom realization has manifested, was named Surya Nashi, means knowing how to manifest out of compassion. In short, he possessed a splendid entourage, realm, subjects, and wealth, refers to the revelation of the bountiful perfection of all the phenomena of samsara and, and nirvana from the expanse of the alaya. And that, in there that means the ultimate ground. Once, that is when there is an attraction to confusion, near the king's palace means the proximity of the substrate, the substrate with the proximity of the substrate with samsara. In a marketplace refers to the locus of distraction, namely the five sense fields, which are your own appearances. There was a great festival, means the arising of various objective appearances of the six fields of experience. Prince refers to conceptual confusion, namely momentarily arising conceptual dispersions. Kirana refers to numerous thoughts and analyses. Together with his entourage went to see the show means together with ideation concerning the five senses. <coughs> illusion refers to the arising of various appearances. The various spectacles displayed by an illusionist 
refers to all kinds of appearances of yourself and confusion. The prince went to watch and he was carried away by them. The creative power of awareness, pristine awareness, revealed itself by way of the momentarily arising five senses. Getting separated from his companions means wandering off to the six fields of experience. He became confused about the way back to the palace, means not ascertaining the ground. Lost his way, means not having found the path to enlightenment, which is the locus of the appearance of primordial consciousness. You enter the suffering of activity due to reifying apprehended objects. In lands of people of more than one race, refers to differentiating between samsara and nirvana. The prince wandered by foot, means you circle around in the three realms and the six types of sentient existence, and the fruits of confusion ripen. Became a vagrant. Like a vagrant, you do not dwell in the ground, but circle around among the gates of the cities of the wombs of deceptive appearances. He forgot his homeland. means forgetting the ground of the original nature of existence. Wandered from the gates of one city to another. One becomes conceptually confused about activities and thoughts occurring due to dynamic, karmic, vital energies, and you're activated by grasping onto apprehended objects. One experiences the individual sufferings of the six types of sentient existence and becomes confused in the midst of dispersing thoughts and cravings. Eating beggar's food means experiencing various kinds of suffering. Wearing beggar's rags, entering into or dwelling among dualistic attachments and hatred and the five poisons. Living in the company of foolish derelicts means living in the company of confusion due to the deceptive appearances of the six types of objects. He found nowhere to sleep but on doorsteps, sleeping amidst the five poisons and external appearances due to habitual propensities, and experienced great mystery, wandering in, in samsara while experiencing actions and their consequences. Many months and years went by, means with the separation from the, the, the total ground, the ultimate ground of great bliss, you are afflicted with immeasurable sufferings for eons. The kingdom, having lost its princely heir, was on the verge of collapse. You stray from your Buddha nature. There was fear that the royal line of King Akashagarbha had come to an end. There is fear that the noble line of the speech or the family of the Buddha has come to an end. At that time, the young beggar prince, referring to the experience of momentarily arising thoughts, which is the very locus of confusion, in roving about, continuing in the suffering of all six types of existence, among the city-states, that is, traveling to all favorable and miserable types of rebirth, happened to arrive at the door of the wise men of Surya Nashim. This indicates finally awakening from your karmic excursions and meeting with a realized guru who carries the practical teachings. The minister refers to the, to the guru who heals the confused mind of the student, recognizing him as, recognizing your, our own mind as the Buddha, the prince, momentary awareness, exclaimed, O oh, our prince who has previously lost has returned, although the wandering substrate is the Buddha nature, it, wa- it wanders in the cycle of existence. I'll interject very briefly there. The substrate and then the rikpa. Rikpa is said to be the fluid state and the substrate and the coarse mind frozen. They're not of different natures. One is crystallized, reified, caught up in grasping but is not different than Rikpa. So, oh, although the wandering substrate is the Buddha nature, it wanders in samsara. 
You need not beg, indicates that you need not wander in samsara. Come to the palace. And he began to lead him there. Refers to leading you by identifying your own environment as a Buddha field. The beggar prince replied, this refers to not believing in yourself. You think, I am not a Buddha. He says, I am no prince. You are, out, you are without the fruits of joy. When I search my memory, I recall being only a vagrant. Means having forgotten your own basic mode of existence. You recall your habitual propensities pertaining to samsara, which only cause you to wander on. You may bring me to the palace, but I'm not fit to be king. Means you think that your mind is not fit to be a Buddha. So I shall not go. Means you do not enter into ultimate reality, but remain obsessed with inferior behavior. The minister replied, this refers, of course, to the guru, as a young prince, he said, indicates the vagrant wandering of the substrate and the momentary arising of the creative power of the disciple. Foolish and not coming to your strength indicates that realization had not yet become manifest. You went to watch an illusionist show in the marketplace means not knowing yourself. You behave due to deceptive vital energies, just out of sheer habit, your karmic propensities. Getting caught up in the spectacle means getting caught up in the objects of the six fields of experience. You left the domain of the palace and went wandering. The ground, the substrate, wanders in samsara due to grasping onto dispersing thoughts and to detach attachment and hatred. And now, even though you live as a vagabond, you are indeed the prince. The essence of the substrate is the Buddha nature. So you will be given the seat of royalty. You're brought to the ground. This is the ultimate ground of reality, Dhammatatu, Dhammakaya. If you persist in your doubts about being the prince, means thinking that your mind is not a Buddha. And then we have the questions. Here I'm going to interject just very briefly. Jungne dosum, investigating origin, location, and destination of your own mind to see whether you're inherently, your mind is inherently the mind of a sentient being, and whether you are inherently, your mind is inherently the mind of a sentient being, and therefore whether you are inherently, truly, really, a sentient being. So the questions. What was your original homeland indicates that you are not born from the substrate and the dispersing thoughts are momentary arisings. What was the palace? Means on what foundation do you exist? What's your basis? What was the city? What is the locus of your dispersing thoughts? What was your home? Means where was the abode of your momentarily arising thoughts created? What was your class? Means what kind of momentarily arising events are the dispersions of the mind? Who is your father? This refers to the primary cause. Who is your mother, the contributing condition? Who are your companions? Refers to the accompanying events. What was your occupation? Determining this with certainty. I ask, this indicates seeking out the master of the psychophysical aggregates by inquiring about the agent of behavior, of hopes and fears, and of ego grasping. Hopefully this is all very familiar. The beggar found he had nothing to say. means upon the collapse of dispersing thoughts and obsessions, there is realization of the essential of essential ultimate reality, which is not established as any essence. It's not, doesn't, it too does not exist by its own inherent nature. He was stunned. This means that you do not know how to articulate it. It's ineffable. 
Well, then tell me in detail about all these things, and that is from the, from the, from the, uh, from the lips of the prince. When you imagine the guru on the crown of your head, you feel that it's possible that, you even, that even you might be a Buddha. Grant them to me. This means that with confidence you ask your guru to reveal these things. The minister, refers to the spiritual mentor who has genuine realization, gave names to the realities. This means that these are practical teachings that present a parable together with its meaning. And now the concluding paragraph, and we'll go to the meditation. Accordingly, just as the prince did not know he was a prince and became a beggar, you fail to recognize the ultimate reality of your own mind as the Dharmakaya, and you wander in samsara. Just as the minister recognized the prince and brought him to the seat of royalty, the guru identifies the ultimate reality of your mind as the Dharmakaya, and upon becoming freed from the suffering of samsara, you achieve the excellent qualities of a Buddha. So sometimes a story is worth a thousand words of philosophy. So let's rest quietly. Go to the meditation. aspiration to, to realize perfect spiritual awakening, Buddhahood itself. Let's devote ourselves to the cultivation of great compassion, Mahakuruna. And with this motivation, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. Let the many crystallizations of your coarse mind, these myriad thoughts, memories, fantasies, desires, and so on, let them all melt. Melt into a drop of pure awareness, resting silently, utterly at ease in the present moment. As you may imagine, all of the coarse vital energies coursing through, flowing through your body, converging into the center 
up through the central channel to the heart chakra, converging in upon the indestructible drop, the vital essence, the energetic essence that we visualize as a radiant incandescent pearl of white light. Symbolic of this very subtle energy mind, pristine awareness, and the energy of primordial consciousness, non-dual. So unless we've realized Rigpa already, then we can simply imagine viewing reality from that perspective. Attend, attending to the extent of suffering and the causes of suffering throughout the world, within the human population and all other populations, in our world and all other worlds, we may very well wonder does it really need to be so? Does there need to be so much suffering? And so much perpetuation of suffering? And it leads to a question, a heart-wrenching question. In Tibetan Samjin Tamsit Dunga Dandunga Gikyotan Dhamma Chimaru. Why couldn't all such beings be free of suffering and its causes? And from this perspective, your imagined perspective, viewing reality from your own Buddha nature, ask this question and answer it. Is there any reason why we, each one, everyone, all of us, could not be free, totally and irreversibly, from all suffering and its causes? reflect that while the forces of mental afflictions, of delusion, craving, hostility, and all of the derivative mental afflictions, and all of the actions that are aroused by these poisons of the mind, although their magnitude is vast, the power of the Buddha nature is greater. All these afflictions are rooted in delusion, in non-reality. Whereas the Buddha nature is reality. And as the saying goes, the truth shall prevail. So why couldn't we all be free of suffering and its causes?
if you see no reason why each sentient being one by one couldn't even in principle ever be free, if there is no reason why each one couldn't be free, given, of course, the fact that each one is imbued with the Buddha nature, if there's no reason, then move to the aspiration, because you see the possibility, you see hope, you see the possibility of freedom. From the depths of your heart arouse the aspiration, may we all be free, may it be so. Tend to the world of sentient beings. They are, we are, the object of mindfulness. And we attend to them with the aspiration. May we all be free of suffering and its causes. designating yourself on the basis of designation, your own Buddha nature, or this very subtle energy mind. And if you will, arouse the resolve, the promise, the pledge, I shall free us all. At this point, while we're still confused about whether we are the beggar, the vagrant, or the prince, and waver between these two in uncertainty, not yet come into our strength, still confused, given this being the current situation, and offer the prayer, the supplication. May the Guru and the Yidam bless me to enable me to do so. And with this request, imagine from with each in-breath Rays of light coming from all directions, above and below and all all the way around. From the Guru, the Yidam, from all the Buddhas, all the Vedas and Dakinis, all the Enlightenments of the three times. Imagine these blessings converging in upon you from all sides.
As they do so, imagine your body being purified, transmuted into a Vajra body, empty, pure, luminous. Your speech transformed into the Vajra speech. Your mind melted into Dhammakaya, the Vajra mind. And with every out-breath, from your nucleus, from this indestructible bindu at your heart, this inexhaustible source of light, imagine light rays flowing out in all directions, enacting your resolve, carrying through with your promise. liberate all beings from suffering and the causes of suffering. With each in-breath, draw in the light. With each out-breath, send out the light. you continue practicing breath by breath. If specific individuals or communities or domains of sentient beings come to mind, rather than regarding these images or thoughts as distractions, transform them into the path. With every out-breath sent out, this light of compassion. And imagine alleviating the suffering and the causes of suffering of everyone who comes to mind.
Breath by breath, imagine all the world becoming free. Breath by breath, purify your vision, your perception of all sentient beings, including specific individuals you know. Exercise, purify your mind, and see them as pure, as free. Their Buddha natures unveiled. By purifying your vision of all those around you, you purify your vision of yourself. By purifying your vision of yourself, you purify your own mind.
melt all of your reified concepts about others, who you think they really are. Melt them. Until you see who they really are. And only in this way can you see who you really are. separation of I and you, subject and object, which was constructed, dissolves away. Bring your awareness now in upon yourself, your own body, speech, and mind. Insubstantial, translucent, hollow, appearing and yet not really there. A body of light taking on your normal form, your normal appearance. seen as a pure effulgence or expression of your own Buddha nature, hold that appearance and hold the sense I am pristine aware. And release the appearance and release the thought. And effortlessly allow your awareness to rest. Clear, still, non-conceptual, and cognizant.
I don't know if I don't know if you're like me in the following way, but sometimes I get very tired of being myself. <laughs> the same old person, same old beard every morning, I have to shave it off. The same old, same old, same old load. The same old, same old just kinda of goes on and on and on. And I think about how much transformation is needed. It's gonna be three countless eons, or I'm one of those unlucky ones, seven countless eons, you know. How long does this go on? It gets so tiring being a sentient being. Yeah, really. That Stanford diploma didn't help me that much in that regard. Just, you know. And so sometimes you just get fatigued with being a sentient being. Then, basta. <laughs> Enough already. You don't have to transform it, you don't have to modify it, you don't have to purify it, you don't have to improve it, just basta. You know, bring out the, the sentient being buster. <laughs> basta, basta. And just dissolve, disintegrate, shatter it. You know, just basta. Release so you're nobody. And then reform. When this, in a way, that's already free. Such a relief. So that's a very direct path. As we, as we had on our bumper stickers 45 years ago, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. There is no way to enlightenment. Enlightenment is the way. Enough cliches. Enjoy your day.